We're completing today a series of three on the subject of money and giving. And uh, we've been looking at that over the past three weeks as a church, uh, not particularly with an eye to tomorrow and all that we are going to think about church planting, but partly, I guess, with an eye to that. Uh, We began, you'll see this on the back of the service sheet, two weeks ago with uh, a talk on Bible basics on money and giving. The most basic of all is that we never talk about money because we're British. Um, And yet it's striking that it's certainly not the most important thing Jesus speaks about, that's the gospel. But the single biggest topic in the New Testament in terms of Jesus' teaching is money, strikingly. I said at the beginning it would be good to talk about money by the time we got to the end, and thank you that all of you are telling me it's been good to talk about money. What are some of the Bible basics? Well, I guess the, the basic principle is that in our culture, in our world, there are lots of gods that replace the living God. One of the big ones is money. And I think that uh, money... Uh, These are cliches, but they're true. Promises, contentment, uh, our identity, status, security, worth, and happiness are found in these things. And as a parent of children, it's so easy, even as Christians, for us to be sucked into that mindset that identity and security and status is in material things and Uh, what we do and what we've achieved in life. That's not wrong, these things, but our fundamental identity as Christians is in Jesus. The promise, though, of contentment through material things is a lie. Uh, That's uh, a prevailing uh, theme, for example, in popular culture, uh, in music, that money does not satisfy or bring happiness in the end. The biggest deception, of course, with the money God is that life on this earth is all there is. That if we are allotted threescore years and ten, and that's the end of it all, then our identity and status and worth and security will be in who we are in this world, good or ill. Now, Christian conversion completely changes that perspective. Life here is a mere breath compared to eternal life, as we have sung. And yet money is still dangerous for Christians in two ways. One, that we get sucked into the pressure, the culture of the world, and we battle with sin, and we struggle to live distinctively in a world where money is God. That's one danger. The other danger is kind of Christian piety or asceticism, that we think God is a kind of killjoy God. So I knew I got sermon one wrong. When people said to me afterwards, is it okay for me to put in a new kitchen? And I said, well, I don't think God is that interested. Of course it's okay. I mean, yes, of course it's okay. It's a disaster in a sermon series on money if people go home and cancel their season tickets or whatever. That's not what this is about. God is no killjoy. But money is a big area of Christian discipleship. It's good to talk about it. It's one of the areas that we do struggle to get right. I think it is difficult to get it right, but my my hunch is that uh, we want to get it right. Last week, Roger um, took us to Luke 15, and we looked at the subject of 
using money wisely to invest in what will last for eternity. Luke 15 is Jesus preaching on money, one of the key passages, and he says this in summary. I am your master, this is to Christians, the money you have is mine. Use it wisely to invest in my business, which is seeking and saving the lost. Use it wisely to invest in what will last for eternity. And that's just, I think, logical. Two talks so far, two small group studies, one still to come. And then you'll see on the sheet questions people are asking. I'm not going to answer any of these questions now. We will tomorrow night. I put them down on the sheet as they are, though, and uh, I knew what would happen this morning by 9.30 is that people would say to me, gosh, they're bold questions. Or are you really going to answer them? To which I responded, they're great questions. And proper questions like that really help us as a church to discern what is right. So you're going to plant a church. You don't do that very often. We've got to make sure that we are planting in a church in the right place. We've just bought a building and a house that I live in, Sally and the family. Is it right to be moving forward so quickly with a vision like church planting? And they're great questions, and we'll look and answer them tomorrow night as part of the series. So do keep asking your questions. I want us to turn this morning, though, to our wonderful passage. It's a great passage. It made me smile all week when I've studied it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, page 967 to 968 in the church Bibles. So, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Now, let me give you a bit of a heads up on what's going on in this letter in the Bible. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth the Corinthian church, and to other churches and Christians in the surrounding region of Achaia. So he often writes his letters to one church, but to other churches around the big church. Corinth is the main city, and the church in Corinth, the main church in the region of Achaia. So here's the beginning of the letter. Let me just read this to you, chapter 1, verse 1. To the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the chapters we'll read, Paul is explaining to them arrangements for an offering or a collection or a kind of a raising of money from the Greek churches in the region of Achaia, and Corinth is the main church, and the adjacent region of Macedonia. And the collection or the giving appeal is for the impoverished churches in uh, Judea. One of the things that had happened in this time after Christ is that the Roman authorities had ensured that the churches in Jerusalem and Judea uh, were completely devoid of any material resources. And uh, what Paul is doing is writing to the Greek churches, Corinth, Achaia, and the next region, Macedonia, and he's saying, look, are you going to help with this significant need? And uh, that's what's going on here. And so let me read with one or two comments as we go through chapters 8 and uh, 9. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, or brothers and sisters, about the grace of God 
that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, just remember, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and the churches in the region of Achaia, but he begins by talking about what's been happening next door in the next region of Macedonia. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So that's the Macedonian Christians. And now Paul turns to address the church in Corinth and their region, their part in giving towards the needs of the churches in Judea. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And I think what Paul is saying there is that the church in Corinth had committed to respond to the appeal some time ago, and Paul is now asking them to follow through on their promise and give their money. I say this, verse 8, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This befits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, and there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over, and whoever gathered little has no lack. And then the next bit, Paul commends Titus to them. Paul sends Titus just to make sure that they follow through on their promise. And then verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9, he speaks about the, the, the collection or the, the giving for the churches in Judea. And then he finishes, and we'll pick up there, chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I um, wish that uh, the apostle had written there, for God really doesn't like grumpy givers. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 
as it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, following from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Well, there we go. Two great uh, chapters in God's uh, word. And in the time that we have, I want to draw out four points by way of application. There is a lot more that could be said, but these are the things that I think will be helpful. Uh, As I said a minute ago, Many of you are going to pick this up in your small group where you will study it there. Now, just to say to our undergraduate students here, we're not after your money, unless you're in fourth year. What I mean by that, of course we're not after your money, so don't phone your parents and say, what was the sermon about? He wants our money. I don't want your money. You've got to, this is, next week we get on to our, our main stuff. This is for a particular reason. We don't want your money if you're an undergraduate student We don't want your money because we want to look after you. Why did I say fourth-year students? I think it's a brilliant time for a number of you are at that stage of university to think about patterns for your life now before you get caught up with all the stuff that comes with that. Um, I think it's helpful to, it is a passage that focuses on money. At the earlier service, we had some people join the church and they made promises to give a fitting proportion A fitting proportion would be in the New Testament, generous, willing, sacrificial. A fitting proportion of time. Time uh, to the church. That means investing, serving, being part of, coming along, being in a small group, whatever it is. Giving a fitting proportion of your time, your gifts, your gifts whatever they are, and your money for the work of the gospel. Three things. So I think it would be good for us to, to allow, and I need to let you do this, to apply the principles here, not only to money, but to uh, the giving of our time and the giving of our gifts. And, and don't think of money simply as how much money is in the bank. Money is all the material things that we have. So, for example, the homes or the flats that we're in using them for uh, the sake of the gospel. Um, And it can be very practical things. So you've got a warm flat. Invite folks to come around and feed them when it's cold. People who are lonely. So it's not about money simply in a a narrow uh, view uh, of it. There are many, many Christians who have two homes and uh, they bless people by allowing people to use them 
I was in a, a conference in Ireland last year and was staying in a place called Rock House, just on the peninsula at Port Stewart. And that house is owned by someone who's very wealthy and I guess there would be Christians who would say that you should sell that. And, but that house blesses hundreds and hundreds of people when they come and stay and recover from various issues. So try and see this as a wider orb subject. But the principal application is on the subject of money. Firstly, Christian giving is a grace gift. This is just great. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. If all the things you could ever say about money from the Bible, this is the best. Right? Your appetites are whetted. Why do we give as Christians or as a church to the work of the gospel? Why do we do it? Why do we set up standing orders? What's our motivation? The answer here, it's supernatural. It is a consequence of the Holy Spirit living in us. The selflessness, the generosity, the deep, deep desire to see those who are lost found, to see people saved for eternity, such convictions are born of the Holy Spirit who lives within us and the giving practically of time, talents and money, time, gifts and money to support these convictions is born of the same Holy Spirit. That's what makes Christians give gladly and generously. The Spirit of the generous Jesus living within us. Now let me illustrate that practically. One of the questions you'll see on the sheet there is, can you tell me what percentage we need to give every week? And the answer was in talk one, 100%. That's a great answer, isn't it? That's Jesus' answer. In a sense, all that we have is his. But practically, what does it mean? Well, as you, many of you know, I love watching songs of praise. Yeah, None of you watch it, but I watch it. I keep the ratings up single-handedly. Yet, when you watch it one week, see, they had... Uh, Keswick or Spring Harvest, whatever it was. You watch a company of Christians singing and you can tell, I can tell you're singing as Christians. And then some other weeks, it's not, it's not so lively. It's not lively as in what music or what a company or what people do and express it. It's just dead. And the difference between giving financially and giving of time and giving of life and giving of money between someone who is a, a kind of religious church core and a converted person is chalk and cheese night and day. Suddenly people go from putting... I still remember the days a number of years ago when I would do a funeral and someone would give me an envelope with a tenor in it. It's quite cheeky, isn't it? It's not a lot. You put £10 or £5 in the offering bag and you're earning 100000 Suddenly you're converted and you put in 25000 a year. And what's making you do that? It's not that you've changed to a new set of rules. It's that Jesus lives within you by his spirit. And you become generous. Your perspective shifts. You begin to think, well, look, I've got three score years and ten and then all of eternity with Jesus what am I going to do with my time, my money, my gifts for him? And there's a gladness and a sense of being released 
in terms of pressure. We give because the Holy Spirit lives within us. Now, consider these Macedonian churches, chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. This is how Paul begins, not the church in Corinth, but this other group next door, the next region. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, chapter 8, verse 1, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and the extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. You see what Paul is saying? He is not referring to the generosity of the churches in Macedonia. So I'm not going to give you examples of generous Christians or generous churches. The example I'm going to give you of the the generosity of the Holy Spirit when he is alive in the life of a Christian or in the life of a church. Paul is not referring to the generosity of the churches in Macedonia as the example to inspire others to give. Rather, he is referring to the grace of God. So read it with me again. Just look at it carefully. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So suffering for the sake of the gospel is a gift of grace. There are Christians who have been given a very special measure of that grace. Giving for the sake of the gospel is a gift of grace. And I think it's fair to say that there are Christians who have been given a special grace, a special gift to give. Now, their circumstances, the Macedonians, prove the point. Now, see what Paul is saying. They are experiencing a severe test of affliction, yet are experiencing an abundance of joy. How does chalk go with cheese? How can you have a severe test of affliction and yet an abundance of joy? That can only be supernatural. It just doesn't make sense. And then he makes the parallel point by saying they're experiencing extreme poverty and yet there has been an overflow and a wealth of generosity on their part. How can you have extreme poverty and an overflow of generosity? Well, they're either daft, these Macedonian churches, or driven by some kind of warped sense of enjoying hardship, or it's supernatural. Again, it's the Holy Spirit living within them. See, as we look to plant a church, that's going to cost a squillion pounds. Okay? What do you do? Well, we could have one of these kind of nanometers outside. Then Every five years, we put another line of red. You know, as we scrabble together. Or, or we could see the Holy Spirit welling up within us, giving us a liberality and a generosity for the sake of the gospel to plant a church. It's not going to cost a squillion. Nothing like that. The inspiration here is not the Macedonian Christians, it is the Holy Spirit. And the wonderful thing about that inspiration is the Holy Spirit that dwelt within them is the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. The Holy Spirit that dwelt within the Apostle Paul is the Holy Spirit that dwells within you and I. 
that Holy Spirit gives us joy and affliction and gives us an abundant, overflowing generosity to give. Now, read on verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Now, that's a, a great practical Bible verse. They gave according to their means, as I can testify. In other words, that's the bit that mattered to me. That's the integrity bit. And beyond their means, of their own accord. So God asks us to give according to our means. He does not ask us to give more than according to our means. And when he says that kind of thing, he means it. He does mean it. Why, in relation to one of the questions there, are we asking the congregation to give to another project, the plant, having recently given to the purchase and development of buildings? Well, the answer to that question is that the elders have looked long and hard, not at the Excel spreadsheets of the average giving per household, although they have these numbers, not any individual giving. And they conclude that, as a congregation, Many of us are not giving according to our means. That's the discipleship issue. That's the hard issue. And that doesn't mean to say that you, you, you beat the drum about that. It means to say when you face something challenging, you think, well, it's not unwise for us to go down that route. Because there is a gap. There is a, 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 an ability for us to, 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 to raise our affections for Jesus in this area of Christian uh, giving. Now, it's not reasonable uh, for anyone to ask a Christian or a church to give beyond their means. And you need to underline that. That's right. Beyond that, it is reasonable for an individual or a family or a church to want to give beyond what is possible for them to give. I think when you start going down the route of writing it all down and having a budget and saying, can I do this, can I do that, what can I do? I think you're going to hit a brick wall in the end. You've got to be sensible and wise and, and say, well, okay, this is a bit beyond it. And I'm getting a little worried as the minister of Chalmers when I see the list of people going in the church plant growing and, and it's great. And I kind of encourage them and then go, oh, it's going to create a big gap for us across the church. One of the striking things about the giving from the Macedonian churches is that they gave according to the means and much more. Now, let me say this about Christian giving. There are some Christians who give a great deal of money in real terms. Now, I'm mercifully free of having a large enough salary in order to be in that problem category. And that is a great blessing. Christian ministers are paid good and fair amounts, but we're not paid hundreds of thousands of pounds, which is very difficult when you're earning that. Some of the most vexing pastoral conversations I have with young people earning 50, 60, 70, 80,000, and they're vexed as to what to do as Christians with that. There are Christians, many of whom I would know in, in, in London, who fund things like the Bona Trust. These guys are earning, I don't know, men and women, a million pounds a year, something like that. And they're giving away probably six, seven hundred thousand of that a year. Now, that's, that takes an extraordinary degree of grace. I think it really does. So I think it's important that 
We as a church pray for those who earn a great deal. Remember the person who gives away five, six, seven hundred thousand a year who earns a million still has three hundred thousand, so they're still able to. And I think that's, I don't find that wrong. You've got to not hear any of this as some kind of Marxism. But it does take extraordinary grace, like a gift from God, to write checks for a hundred thousand pounds or half a million pounds. And we need to pray that such people who have means like that will be given that particular grace and that particular gift. Saying that, if you earn £20,000 or £30,000, and what is a sacrificial amount? Say, if you're earning £30,000, that might be, what, £250 a month? That takes some grace to you to write that cheque. It's just practical Christian discipleship. What's drinking about the Macedonians, though? Here they are, prime example in these chapters in giving. In the end of the day, their sacrificial, generous giving, according to their means, plus a little bit more, would amount to diddly squat in the end. Wouldn't be very much, would it? Be a small standing order from them. Wouldn't be very much. And that's the point. God does not have an Excel spreadsheet to add up the amounts. I wonder if we think sometimes that raising money is difficult for God. I wonder if the God who created the world can raise money for gospel projects. I think he can. How does he do it? Well, he just needs to inspire one person to write the check. That's all he needs to do. He's perfectly capable of that. What God wants to do in churches and in Christians, whatever they earn, is to raise their affections for Jesus and let that be expressed in, in, in areas like morality and in areas like giving and in areas like serving. So that Christian is rendered safer and more godly, and more Christ-like. God does not have a problem raising the money. In fact, he doesn't bother about that at all. His concern is raising our affections for Jesus. To see the spirit of his Son living within us. To see the spirit of generosity and selflessness running its course through the life of a church. And so you can understand the difference when a whole church family has their affections raised for Jesus in this way, and that giving is a response to everyone moved by the Spirit, not someone. Again, let me be clear. I don't know the financial details of what people give. When we raised the money for this building uh, and the other, the house a couple of years ago, the total for it all was two and a half million, something like that. And nobody gave an unusually large percentage of that. So this, the giving was spread right throughout the whole church, which, is, which gives you the confidence that there's a discipleship commitment according to people's means. So giving is a grace gift. So take home application. Please, God, that's your prayer. May the grace to give that is in me by the Holy Spirit well up in my heart with joy and generosity. And those of us who have less means, we need to pray that for ourselves. And we need to pray for the particular challenges faced by people who have very large amounts of money. They are often the most committed Christians, but the challenge they face is very difficult and considerable. So do pray for them. 
Second, and if, as you read the letter at this point, you're almost wanting to get to Jesus. I know the answer is always Jesus, but you want his example now. You just need his example before you. But we're well prepped now, after verses 1 to 7, not to mishear what the example of Jesus means. So, the example is not the Macedonian Christians, it's the grace of God at work in them. It's the Holy Spirit living in them. And the grace of God at work in them and the Holy Spirit living in them is what we can have. We ask for it. It's God giving the Macedonian Christians a special season of giftedness to give. Ask for it. Don't try and imitate their example. And equally, it's with Jesus. When we think of the example of Jesus, and we use that phrase a lot, it's not that Jesus, our example, is over there. It's that Jesus, our example, is in here, in the person of his Spirit. How would you describe Jesus as a grace-filled person? How would you describe yourself? Bible's answer, as a grace-filled person. Maybe you don't think of yourself as that, but that is who you are as a Christian. You're grace-filled. You're Christ-filled. The Spirit of the living Christ breathes within you, transforming your mind and transforming your heart. It's a battle with your fallen flesh still, but Jesus lives in you. And that wonderful verse in the middle of verses 8 to 10, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What a great verse that is. Speaking of spiritual things, Jesus gave up his spiritual riches, his kingdom, for spiritual poverty. He died on the cross for our sake, that you through his poverty might become rich, robed in righteousness, a child of God, a co-heir with Jesus of an eternal kingdom. So it's spiritual, chapter 8, verse 9, isn't it? He was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. Righteousness. But this passage is talking about money. And the point there is that the spiritual transformation that comes through the Holy Spirit issues out in all areas of practical discipleship in our life. One thing I think is good for us to take note is that when Jesus lived on earth, he was poor, relatively speaking. He called his disciples to give up material stuff to follow him. He promised he would make it up to them in this life and in the life to come in all sorts of ways. And that is the ground we were on last week in Luke 15. Rog quoted the words of Jim Elliot. He wrote these words in his diary as he studied Luke 15. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So the grace-filled example of Jesus... Thirdly, proportionate giving. Verses 11 to 15, Paul is encouraging the churches in Corinth to finish what they started. So now finishing, doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you are. Paul's no, there's no flies on the apostle, is there? He writes to the Corinthian church, said, you excel in all things, and you did say you'd do this, so I'm sending Timothy to um, collect the check. 
<laughs> it's really what he's saying. I mean, there's a, there's a practicality to discipleship. Now, I want you to note the words at the end of verse 11. Give out of what you have. Give of your time, your gifts, and your money for the church's work. If it's gospel work that church is engaged in. Out of what you have. Do not give more time than you have. Do not serve in ways that you are not gifted to serve. And do not give what you do not have to give. It's just sensible. We are to give proportionately out of what we have. Proportionate giving will not mean the same percentages for everyone. It must be based on what is sacrificial and generous. One of the practical areas in the life of a church is that different Christians have different capacity levels for work, for example. Different capacity levels to serve. But if you take a church as a whole, and if every committed Christian in that church was giving according to what they have or out of what they have in the three areas of serving, time, and money, then there would be a lot less hassle in churches. Things would just tick and happen normally. Proportionate giving Give according to what you have. And finally, verses 9 to 16, the many benefits of grace-filled, generous giving. Uh, Let me read verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Christian giving resembles a harvest. We reap what we sow. Whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously reaps generously. Sowing here is a picture of giving. And what is the harvest we reap? What is the harvest when we reap when we give of our time and our gifts and our money? It is a harvest, verse 10, of righteousness. A spiritual harvest. The master's work is to bring souls into his kingdom. That is what we are to spend our money on. That is what will last for eternity. Verse 10 is a puzzling verse. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That sounds a bit like a prosperity gospel, doesn't it? If you give away, God will give it back to you. Oh, well, how do you caution against that? Well, if he does give it back to you, so you can give it away. I think what it's saying is that Christians who give of their time and their talents and their money gladly and willingly, that, that, that God, God gives them the ability to abound in more giving and more gladness and more generosity. And he blesses them sometimes by giving them money that they can give it away gladly. The principle here in verses 6 through 8 is, 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 I think, where we get the principle of seed corn funding. 
seed corn funding, you give a little bit, and then God uses that and it grows. I think it's a good thing to apply to a church when they think about planning a church. We can't plan a church on our own. We give bits of money. We give what we can. We give according to our means. And each of these grows to become a living church. So one of the benefits of graceful, generous giving is a harvest of righteousness. Also at the end of, verse, uh, the end of chapter 9, thanksgiving to God. How does giving lead to thanksgiving to God? Here's how. Think of... Uh, the church plant 10 years from now, um, which will then have forgotten that it was a church plant from Chalmers, hopefully. And someone comes to faith in that church, see? Let's pray that that'll happen, of course. What do you think when the church gathers together and Sam goes to the elders and says, look, let's pray, what are we going to thank God? Are we going to thank you, God, for these generous people from Chalmers who gave sacrificially? in order for this person to come to faith? Of course not. They're going to thank God, aren't they? Thank God for this person's faith. So generous giving leads to thanksgiving to God. And he doesn't mean here, thank you God that you've given us the grace to give. I think he's saying there are lots of reasons that people will thank God, but somewhere in the chain, in the background, there has been generous Christian giving. Grace-filled, generous giving promotes thanksgiving to God and brings glory to God. And that's why our vision as a church is passion for the glory of God. That is our chief aim, to bring glory to God. And let me say as well that giving God glory through the way that we live is an experiential thing. It's not a kind of abstract concept. When you give gladly of time, talents, and money, time, gifts, and money, there is a spirit of thanksgiving for God that wells up in your own heart. And there is a sense that God is glorified, and we experience that. But the final word in the series, yeah, verse 7 of chapter 9. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What a practically sensible verse that is. Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. And uh, the job of Christian ministry, elders and preachers, is to seek transformation in mind and heart. And then the people with transformed minds and hearts answer questions like chapter 9, verse 7. That's the point, isn't it? Now, the treasurer is away for the weekend, which shows you that holidays are not wrong. Okay? And please don't go home and cancel your golf club membership or cancel that new car or the cruise or the new kitchen or the mountain bike or lunch out today. That's not what the Bible is saying. You know it isn't. So don't... Don't let yourself off the hook by thinking it is. I think if people in Chalmers are giving of their time, their ministry gifts and their money, and of course we're always on the wire as a church, grudgingly, or with a sense of being under compulsion, just let the siren go past, then you should cancel your standing order. 
for a year and pray about it. I think that's right. Let me encourage us that God is not wringing his hands to say, how am I going to raise money to plant a church? It'll come. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this very practical and helpful Bible passage. Help us to heed it, listen to it, and not mishear it um, as we commit it to you and ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, amen.